Good morning. <clears throat> Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading there from verses 14 through 24. Genesis 3, 14 through 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was taken, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's holy and living word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, and we pray now, Father, that in your grace you would not only apply your word to our lives, but open up our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds to make sense of it, understand it, Lord, to submit to it, to be conformed into the image of Christ by it, and indeed, may your spirit work to revive our hearts and minds even now, so that as a result of your living and active word, which we're looking at now, you would have us leave here alive with love in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I think one question we want to wrestle with, something we haven't really explored yet in our series through the book of Genesis, is the question, where did Satan come from in the first place? Of course, we've noted how in the sovereign outworking of God's perfect and redemptive purposes, purposes which he's planned out from eternity past, nothing which we've read of in Genesis 1 through 3 so far had ever taken God by surprise, right? 
Everything fell out just as God had planned it. And yet, everyone who acted was still responsible for their actions. God is at once sovereign over all human history, and at the same time, the Bible upholds the responsibility of each human and their actions for their sin. You see this immediately in our passage this morning, right? Twice, once in verse 14 and again in verse 17, God places the blame for what happened earlier on the moral agents themselves. You see that? Because you have done this, God says to Satan in verse 14. And look there again in verse 17. God says, because you have done this to Adam. The point is clear. Even though God is sovereignly in control and even allows other moral agents to make certain decisions, be they good or evil, the responsibility, the the onus is on them and not God. We need to be clear about that. God is not the author of sin. God is, according to Deuteronomy 32.4, or Job 34.10, or Isaiah 6, he is completely righteous and holy and, and far from all wickedness. 1 John 1.5 says that he is pure light in whom there is no darkness. James 1 tells us that God tempts no one. In his law, he prohibits sin. Psalm 5 makes it clear that God does not delight in wickedness. In fact, he hates it and will judge all disobedience. And yet, still, we want to know, where did this evil, lying, deceiving devil come from? Well, we know that when God created everything, the heavens and the earth, all of it was very good, right? So that all creatures, even the angelic hosts which God created, were also good. I think this tells us at least three things. First, there is not some other eternally existing antagonist out there opposed to the being of God. There is no eternal evil presence that has always eternally been fighting against God's eternal good. Christians are not dualists. No, as Colossians 1.16 tells us, all things were created by God in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. In the beginning, there was only good. When God, who is entirely good in and of himself, created, his creation was also good. There was no sin, there was no evil in the very beginning. Secondly, apparently God created with the possibility of evil emerging. Right? He he didn't have to, but, but in God's good wisdom, he created all things good, but with the possibility of evil emerging out of the good, or as classic theologians would say, an absence of good. Evil in and of itself is not a a positive substance, but the absence of, the, the, the disappearance of good. This is interesting because we know that in the new heavens, there will be no possibility for evil. There will be a time where for us, there will be no option for sin. We will not have the choice to sin in heaven, and that's a good thing. God's able to make it just so, so that there's no choice to sin. We long for that day. But apparently here, there was that possibility. Third, some of the angels who were good apparently became bad. At some point between the creation of angels and then the entrance of Satan in chapter 3, verse 1, a number of angels in heaven had rebelled against God. 
We see this truth in Jude 6, where Jude writes that there were angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, where they were then condemned by God. The Apostle Peter picks up on this when in 2 Peter 2, he writes that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Interestingly, that that judgment of being cast to chains of gloomy darkness uh, means uh, the same thing as many unbelievers who are now under the chains of the darkness of unbelief, so that they are chained here within this realm. In other words, the biblical witness understands that Satan was once an angel who was good, but through his sin became evil, and in his evil came to tempt and corrupt God's image bearers, Adam and Eve. So we ask the question, well, why did Satan, as a good angel in heaven, why did he sin himself in the first place? And the Bible, frankly, does not give us an answer to that very tough question. Down throughout the ages, Jewish Christian traditions have read Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 as accounts telling us maybe about the fall of Satan from heaven. But it's difficult to read those passages like that since those two passages are clearly about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. Even still, it's clear that the angels are moral beings because some remained good, whereas others, like Satan, fell. They became evil. They turned into demons. And I I think it's very interesting that Paul refers to angels in 1 Timothy 5 as the elect angels, underlining, I think, the fact that their ability to not fall was due ultimately to God's electing grace. Nonetheless, Satan did fall. And how that came about, we, we just don't know. It's a mystery of mysteries of how sin came to be in the first place. But what is clear is that Satan's fall in nature, he came to destroy the work of God and man. Satan could not destroy God, so he would destroy the image of God. He would get humanity to follow after him. Man and woman rebelling against Yahweh to make Satan now their new allegiance in God. And so he did. And we've been looking at the ugly results of that fall throughout Genesis 3 so far. Humanity hiding from God. Humanity hating each other. And humanity hurrying to excuse themselves and avoid the guilt and shame of sin and judgment. Now this morning, we want to see now the final results of Genesis 3. The final results of the fall. How does God deal with sin? This really is an important question to ask because many men and women today just assume, well, that God doesn't deal with sin. Many people think that God either isn't concerned with sin, they look around and see the evil in the world and God doesn't care, or at least they're thinking he's not concerned with their sin, he'll simply just forgive sin, telling us after death that in the end, eh, don't worry about it, it didn't matter. But of course the Bible doesn't hold to any of these kind of popular positions. What we see here this morning is God's answer to our our sin. How does God deal with sin? First, we see God punishes sin. We see that God punishes sin. In fact, we see God give a, a precise punishment to sin. I read for the first time earlier this year Dante's Divine Comedy. 
uh, which is kind of a, a medieval allegorical poem that uh, revolves around Dante's travels through hell and up into heaven. And while Dante's in hell, he writes about the, the different levels and how in each level there are different sinners being punished precisely for how they sinned on earth. So if while alive you gave into sloth, you lived a life of apathy and indifference, never believing in anything, never really loving anything or really ever going after anything, well then in hell you're forced to endlessly chase around this blank flag without ever stopping, a banner with nothing printed on it, forever running after a meaningless cause. What makes the lazy run in hell? They're chased endlessly by hornets and wasps, which now compel them against their nature to keep moving, 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 forcing them into this furious activity they'd never choose on their own. Because on earth, they never had an inner drive and a fire to energize their lives. Dante saw that the punishment fit their sin. Now be sure, Dante's theology of hell is off. I don't encourage you to read it as like a theology of hell. Uh, I don't think he read it or wrote it as a theology of hell. But I, I don't think that what the book was doing was far off. Uh, the way in which he paints the precision behind God's punishment is, is, is biblical. We, we see it here in this passage. God now getting Adam and Eve and, and apparently even the serpent to come out from hiding. He now delivers his judgment upon them for their sin. You look at the precision. Look at how the punishment fits the crime. Verse 14 Because the serpent in his pride approached Eve and and led the woman to stand with him over and against God's word, what's his punishment? Humiliation. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent's earlier posture of upright defiance against God is punished by everlasting humiliation. Lowliness. God fits the punishment to the crime. The serpent promised the woman that she wouldn't die, but what does God promise in verse 15? He shall bruise your head, even though you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will die. In fact, his head would be crushed by one of Eve's child. Think about that for a second. Satan just thought that he had he'd gotten one up on God, right? He won. He had gotten God's image bearers to forsake God and to instead now go with him. And yet immediately there's a promise that Satan will die by one of the humans themselves. Like, like that's a stunning turn of events, I think, for Satan. He's there, I've got them, oh no, I don't. The punishment fits the sin. Look at the punishment which God gives to the woman. She was made to be a helper to her husband, By bringing offspring into the world. Adam couldn't be fruitful and multiply, you know, without a a woman. But now in her punishment, she would experience pain in that very role. You see that in verse 16. It will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. What should have been one of the most fulfilling parts of Eve's life, of a woman's life, is now a bitter pill to swallow. Maternity and suffering now kind of become coextensive. More startling still is the next part of verse 16. Eve, who was meant to follow Adam's lead in loving support, will now experience conflict within her marriage. The text says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
The only other time that this language is used, it's used word for word in the very next chapter of Genesis 4, where God tells Cain that sin's desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. In other words, just to sin desires like a lion to control and, and to dominate and to devour a man, well, so too will wives now try and do the same over their husbands. Strife and conflict will be a constant part of marriage. The two struggling for control. And this all because Eve led Adam. The punishment fits the crime. We see the same for Adam. He failed to lead his wife. Remember, he just stood there like a dunce watching as the serpent led. And so too, in his marriage, he will experience conflict, right? And he also failed by what he ate. Yes, Eve ate the fruit first, but we've already argued it was Adam's eating of the fruit that really mattered, right? He was the covenant head. He was the public representative for all humanity, and so his eating of the fruit is particularly noted. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. Five times the word eat is repeated to highlight how the punishment fits the crime. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust and to dust you shall return. Just as Adam failed in his eating test, so now he will experience frustration in all of his eating. The punishment fits the crime. And as a ruler over creation meant to subdue and, and, and as the first man to have dominion over all the earth, now the earth will rebel against him. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face will Adam now work the ground. In fact, in the end, the ground of the earth will rule over Adam. In death, he will return to dust. The punishment fits the crime. So do you see then how God precisely punishes sin? God punishes sin, and he, and he does so, notice this, in a measured and proportionate way. God doesn't fly off the handle, letting out his rage in unmeasured anger. No, he calmly, carefully, and precisely punishes sin. God has a perfect justice. But it's not all we see in this passage. Remember, we're asking the question, how does God deal with sin? And we've seen that God punishes sin. God punishes sin precisely. And if we stop there, God would not be impugned in his character. If all God did was punish sin, he would still be good, holy, and wise. Of course, that'd be the end of the story. We wouldn't be here to even preach because that would be it. But that's not the end of the story. That's not all we see. Secondly, we see that God also gives promiscuous grace. God gives promiscuous grace. Did you notice last week in verses 8 through 13, kind of in connection with our passage this morning, how God asked questions to Adam and Eve? Right, right? He slowly and gently and graciously called them out of their hiding. God knew where they were, of course. But in his grace, he sought them out. He wooed them to come out of their darkness, out of the darkness of their shame and, and into the light of his presence. But did you notice how God, even though he asked questions of Adam and Eve, 
he didn't ask any questions to Satan at all. Now, towards Satan, through the serpent, God pronounces immediate judgment. Listen, do you realize how much that highlights the grace of God? God does not have to forgive anyone. God does not need to give second chances to anyone. Once you sin, once you say to God, no, I don't like you and I hate your ways, the second you go that route, it is good and right and just for God to instantly condemn you into eternal judgment. And God has done that with every single one of the fallen angels. There will never be an opportunity for Satan or any other of the multitudes of fallen angels to regain a right relationship with God. There is utter hopelessness in their being. But friends, that is not true with you and I. God not only seeks sinners, like he did in verse 9 with Adam, calling him out, Adam, where are you? But God chooses sinners. He seeks, he finds, and he chooses, and he redeems. Look in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Up until this point, there is no evidence that, he, that Eve has at all repented or sought out at all a renewed relationship with God, right? All she's done so far is hide from God, and when God brought her out, she simply deflected the blame down to the serpent and then deflected the blame back to God. So far, Eve stands defiant against God. But what does God promise here in verse 15? Satan thought he had Eve on his side. She's mine now. God said, no, I will turn her back to me and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity here means to be an enemy of, to, to be against. Look here how God says that he will change the relational status of Eve. She distrusted me and, and yep, she followed after you. You tempted her with a lie and brought about her fall. I will show grace, promiscuous grace, and turn her back to me and I will make her hate you. Come on. Do you know that God this morning, church? Amen. Do you remember when you loved sin? When you loved darkness? When you hated the ways of God? When, when, when you thought of God and were disgusted by being close to such holiness? But God in his promiscuous grace came down and turned you around. God gave you a new heart. God gave you new desires, new loves, and a new relationship with him. And for the first time in your life, you began to hate sin, to hate Satan, to hate his temptations. You used to invite it. You used to go after the darkness. You used to love sin. But now God gave you something new, something better, something real. And you can't, you won't, because of God's promiscuous grace, go back to the ugliness that Satan offered you. Amen. There's enmity between you and the serpent. And that's what God gives to Eve. Eve is the first elect recipient of God's redeeming grace. He chooses her. And then if that's not enough to show just how promiscuous his grace is, he clothes Adam and Eve. You see that in verse 21? He takes off their ridiculous fig leaves and then clothes them in garments of skin. And this is promiscuous grace because God had to kill one of his good creatures to clothe them. The skin had to come from somewhere. 
So we see God's grace. Instead of killing Adam and Eve for their sin, which they deserved, God kills an innocent substitute on their behalf. The animal's life for theirs. Their guilt covered in the lifeblood of another. Sin deserves death, and here God shows grace in that he requires the death of another, someone else's life on their behalf. That's promiscuous grace. And now lastly, and perhaps most importantly, God provides a promise of hope. There is promised hope. Back in verse 15, we see what has come to be called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Uh, That word gospel just means good news. And in verse 15, we see a message of the good news, the good news of promised hope. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, in the midst of judging the serpent, he now turns and and he looks at Eve, and he says, serpent, do you see her? Not only will there be enmity between she and you, but there will also be continued enmity. Strife and conflict between your offspring and her offspring. Now, do you, do you see what God's doing here? God is now looking to the future, right? God is saying he knows and has control over the future. And when you start seeing God dealing with future realities, events that don't yet exist, and yet God is saying that what's going to happen in the now non-existent future reality that I have complete control over, that where you, you see something that doesn't yet exist, I will make it happen, that's where you start getting this idea of hope. God is beginning to promise hope. And apparently in the future, there will be two major descendants of people. Those who follow after Satan, descendants of the serpent, sons and daughters of Satan. Interestingly, Jesus, when he confronts the Pharisees, calls them children of the devil, sons of Satan. And then there are those who are descendants of Eve, following after and trusting in the promised hope which God is giving to her. And look, these two descendants will actually show up throughout the rest of Genesis. Uh, we'll see this pattern throughout the rest of our study. In fact, it shows up throughout the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, these two ancient lineages are still with us even now, today, and will be until God brings his final judgment on the last day. Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17, we see the Apostle John give this vision of an ongoing battle between those who believe in Jesus versus those who don't, those who are following after the serpent. In Revelation, the serpent is referred to as the dragon. And John writes this, that the dragon became furious with the woman, that is the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. Even now the world, led as it is by that ancient serpent, that dragon called Satan, that world still hates and persecutes, and wants to destroy the chosen recipients of grace. The world wants to kill those children of the promise, men and women who trust in the promise of the hope given to Eve. Now again, what is that promised hope? Look at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Eve becomes narrowed down to a singular he. 
One descendant, one child, a son who will come from Eve. And the promise of hope is that that child will crush the head of Satan. And friends, I mean it when I say that the entire rest of the Bible is a recorded narrative history spilling out of this one verse. The whole rest of the Old Testament will be asking the question, who is this child? Genesis revolves around this question. Is it Noah? After Noah dies, perhaps it's Abraham. After Abraham dies, maybe it's Isaac. Is it Jacob? Perhaps it's Joseph. Wait, wait, no, there's that peculiar promise given to Judah at the end of Genesis. Ah, I see, it must be brave Joshua. No, he dies. Okay, I see. Ah, finally, the promised son, the returning king. It's Saul. Here's a man who stands head and shoulders over everyone else. Oh, oh, no. Oh, oh, so it's definitely David. Here at last is the king of kings meant to return God's people back to Eden, a man after God's own heart. Oh, shoot. Satan trips him up with Bathsheba. Okay? So it must be Solomon. That's an impressive and wise man. Oh, no, 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 not the foreign women, not the idols. Okay, it's not Solomon. And on and on and on we go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, looking, searching, hoping for this promised child to come. Who is he who will finally defeat Satan, crush his head and bring us back to Eden? Friends, if you're here this morning and you've never heard the story of Jesus Christ, I'm excited to tell you that there was one child born. In fact, in keeping with this promise right here that he'd come from Eve, this one child was born of only a woman, his mother, Mary, who was a virgin. She became pregnant by the miraculous work of God in her womb. This this child, Jesus, was born a miraculous birth. And because he was born from a woman, he did not know the corruption of that first man, Adam. He alone was free from the corruption of Adam's sin. The first four books of the New Testament, those accounts we call the Gospels, they all record for us that this child, he was actually really the, the, the eternal son of God. The divine son came and became a human son. And in his humanity, he entered our corrupt and fallen world. He became acquainted with our pains. He knew our hurts and our sufferings, but he did not know sin. He never sinned. And in fact, Satan himself attacked him with all that he had. Satan's most powerful temptations, his most devious attacks, his most sinister tricks, all of them fail against the Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' entire life was spent obeying and loving and honoring his divine Father. Many people actually came to love him. They followed him. Jesus cared for them. He healed them of their diseases. He taught them perfectly the truth about God and the world around them. And everywhere he went, Jesus cleared the place of Satan's influence. It was almost as if he was bringing Eden back in himself, a kind of kingdom of heaven everywhere Jesus went. Except Satan had one last trick up his sleeve. Satan still controlled all the people in authority. And so he got all the people in authority to not only hate Jesus, but to even arrest Jesus and sentence him to death. The prophet Isaiah, prophesying 700 years before the coming of Jesus, powerfully describes what happened to Jesus next. 
Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As someone from whom men hide their faces. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. It's with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silenced. So he opened not his mouth. The authorities and people in power who hated Jesus led a meek and quiet Jesus to be nailed on a cross, and there they left him to die in agony. Satan must have thought at that moment, finally, at last, I've won. Here was one greater than Adam, Jesus, the author of life himself, who became a man, and Satan just killed him. Here's the hope. This was God's promised hope all along. Satan merely bruised his heel. Three days later, Jesus would rise again from the dead, never to die again. He is alive right now. And in that resurrection, Jesus dealt the first death blow to Satan. On the cross, when Jesus was dying, God the Father placed the sins of the world upon him. The Father crushing his own son for our sins. Jesus shedding his own blood for our guilt. Jesus dying for our lives. And that crushed Satan's head. Friends, that's the hope. That's the good news that's promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And here's the neat thing about it. I think it's neat. It seems Adam and Eve actually believed in that promised hope. Look there at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That name, Eve, means life or life giver. And so it's no coincidence that now, after this promise of hope, now Adam finally names his wife Eve, the mother of all who live. Apparently, Adam had been listening closely to what God was saying in verse 15. He understood well that in the midst of God's judgment, there was a glimmer of radical hope a coming child who would bring life. We've asked the question, how does God deal with sin? I think that question was in Adam's mind the whole time. He was there, in front of God, I'm sure, knees knocking together, watching and listening and waiting. How would God deal with my sin? He saw that God punishes sin, precisely, but he also saw that God gave promiscuous grace. And I think at that point, Adam must have thought, how in the world can God at once punish sin, something he must do as a good and holy God, and yet at the same time still show promiscuous grace? There's an unresolved tension there. How can God punish sin and yet forgive sin at the same time? And I think Adam realized, ah, there it is. There in this promise of hope, in this promised child who would be our substitute, only there can this problem be resolved and answered. The fact that 
God clothes Adam and Eve immediately following this promise of hope seems to signify even further that the life would come about from his future, from this future son, but it'd come about through his death. Right? Blood had to be shed. For Satan's head to be crushed, the Messiah had to bleed as well. The, the sacrifice of that animal served then as kind of the first seal and symbol of hope. A more perfect sacrifice is coming. Adam and Eve looked forward to the sacrifice of a Messiah. They trusted and believed. I think we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven. They trusted in that promised hope. Today, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We remember his death on the cross, and we do so by partaking together in the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted this meal to be a sign and a seal of our being saved by what Jesus accomplished. The bread represents his broken body as he hung upon the cross. The cup represents his shed blood, the sacrifice of his life for ours. By eating of the bread and and drinking of the cup, we as a church, as believers, now give testimony that we not only believe and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, but that we are now spiritually united to Jesus. His life, as it were, is now our life. We're now forever clothed in his shed blood. By believing in Jesus, we become one with him. And where he stands now, alive before God the Father, he stands as our representative. He is the new and better Adam who represents a new humanity. All who believe in him are now alive in him. Friends, in one sense, we are the true descendants of Eve, the truly living. If you're here this morning as someone who believes the good news, and you've been baptized and you're part of a gospel-believing church, then we warmly invite you to now celebrate this meal of the Lord's Supper with us. If you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus, we ask that you allow the elements to pass. They have no bearing upon you. But do watch and observe them. Observe what's going on. This meal is a picture of the gospel, and as such, it's an invitation to you to believe also.